We are going into the Old Testament this summer, and I don't know about you, but I love the Old Testament. It is rich in imagery. Um, you know, we're, we're familiar with, with social media, and on social media you have this access to hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and you know this much about them, right? You know this much about them. You know what they ate yesterday for lunch. It didn't look very good to you, but they seem to enjoy it. You know this much about them, uh, but you don't really know their heart. You don't know what is going on in their life and their relationships uh, in their family, the deep yearnings of your soul, of their soul. Uh, the Old Testament is not like a Facebook friendship. Uh, the Old Testament is like a marriage of 60 years, a, a deep and abiding knowledge of who someone is, an experiential knowledge, a factual knowledge that cultivates and creates a love that, that far exceeds anything you could ever imagine. So what we're going to do is we're going to take 16 weeks and walk through the 39 books and try to paint the big picture. Some of you have been to Disneyland and you've ridden a ride called Soarin' Over California and they've changed it. It's now Soarin' Over the World, but Soarin' Over California mimics a hang glider. It's about a four and a half minute ride. By the way, none of our talks will be four and a half minutes. I apologize. But it's a four and a half minute ride and it covers all of California mimicking a hang glider. It's like an 80 foot uh, curved screen that you sit in front of and it, it takes you to Tahoe and to Yosemite and there's uh, the visual and there's even scents that come out smells that come out to make you feel and think that you are what shows on the screen and so you don't get into the nitty-gritty details you don't see the the streets and and what goes on at the ground level you get a big picture though you see the big picture of the geography of the state and the monumental uh, locations uh, that define the state. And so we're going to kind of do that over 16 weeks with the Old Testament, starting today in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. That's where we're going to start. A lot of familiarity here. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and we've got to start at the beginning. And, and part of that is, uh, for many of us, there's the sense that there's the God of the Old Testament, then a, a different God, kind of, in the New Testament, and then this Holy Spirit that we don't know how to, how to fit in. And so what we want to see is from beginning to end, it's one God. From beginning to end, it's one plan, one work. From beginning to end, his immutable, unchanging character stays the same. So that as we cultivate this 60-year marriage, this deep uh, love affair, this deep and abiding knowledge, we come to a greater conviction that what we see in the Old Testament, what we see on the pages of the New Testament, is true of who God was and true of who He is and who of and true of who He will be in our future. Uh, Genesis chapter one. If you have your Bibles open, we'll just start with uh, two verses. Genesis one one says this: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God. So nothing precedes God. The Bible is not a book about creation. It's not a book about the world. It's a book about God. In the beginning, God. The book is not primarily about us. The Bible is not primarily about us. It doesn't say in the beginning humanity. It says in the beginning God. This is the story of God, not the story of us. This is the story of God, not even just his redemptive plan. Ultimately, this is the story 
about God and, and creation actually forms uh, the basis for one of the most common arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, which basically says uh, if something begins to exist, it must have had a cause. Uh, so if there was a newborn up on stage uh, here in a, in a little crib, you wouldn't say, where did that thing come from? How did that happen? It, it had a cause, right? It, it was created. Uh, if something begins to exist, it has a cause. The second statement of that argument for the existence of God is the universe began to exist. The universe had a beginning at some point. And most, regardless of uh, religious, scientific worldview, have some sort of dating system for how long the world, how long the universe has been around. What most agree on is that it has not existed eternally. It has not existed forever. It had a beginning. So if the first line is whatever uh, begins to exist had a cause, and the second line is the universe began to exist, uh, the end of the argument essentially says the universe must have a cause. And as we just consider that for a second, uh, some of the implications would be that that cause must be of enormous power, of enormous strength. That cause must be timeless in some way in order to uh, be present and to create and to be there at the beginning. Of course, we believe that that is the God of the Bible. And and so in this way, we begin to describe his self-sufficiency, the fact that he's going to do creation and he doesn't need our help. Okay, so God is not insecure and needed to create someone to worship him to make him feel good about who he was. God is not weak. He didn't need our help with projects. Not like having a bunch of kids. (laughs) You can help me with these projects. He didn't need our help. He can do everything on his own, right? Didn't need our praise doesn't need our help. God wasn't lonely. God wasn't sitting around for eternity past thinking, I'm bored. Nothing good on TV. Netflix has long since become useful. Let's make creation. God wasn't bored. God wasn't lonely. Uh, He is self-sufficient. And and so it starts to then to bleed into his sovereignty, his supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing rule, where we understand that, that he didn't help He did creation. The story of creation is the story of God. It's all about him, not necessarily the days of creation, although that's interesting. It's all about God. And and so one of the things we see from cover to cover is it's all about God, and he did it, and he didn't need our help. And we see that in creation. When we think about the Father's plan to send the Son to remedy the problem of sin and our distance from God, we see that he didn't need help there either. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, the Father, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's the Son, so that in him, in the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. You know what you don't see there is, is God reaching out to man and saying, Man, I need, I need some help. We've got a problem that we need to fix. The Father sends the Son. He takes care of that on his own. If you want to read Revelation at 19, it's not just here at the beginning, and it's not just Jesus uh, and, and salvation. It's at the very end of the book as well. And Revelation 19 records uh, the final battle. And, and you know how many verses the final battle is? It's two verses. It doesn't take Jesus long to dispatch the beast. It doesn't take Jesus long to dispatch the rest of the world. Two verses. It lumps essentially the whole world into the second verse, and it just says, and the rest were slain. 
by the one with the sword. Uh, And so we see from cover to cover that this is about God. He is self-sufficient. He is sovereign in his rule, and he doesn't need our help. And and then it it bleeds into his power, right, where we see his his strength. And that's, that's a big deal for us because many of us are trying to control our lives in some way, shape, our form, trying to control our kids, our young kids to go to bed at night, our older kids to make good decisions and to follow the Lord. Some of us are trying to control our spouses to become who we think that they ought to be. Uh, We're trying to control circumstances in our life, whether it be our jobs, our career, or our health. When we try to control our life, we are tangibly denying and doubting the power of God, His sovereign, His supreme, all-knowing, and all-powerful rule over creation. In the book of Nehemiah, there's this really cool verse, well, Daniel uh, chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar has been out in the wilderness, and some of you recall that passage. We were there a while back, and he's been made to eat like a wild animal out in the grass, and the Lord restores him, and he comes back in, and just full of humility, Uh, He essentially says, who is like God? Who does God answer to? Uh, The implication is he he doesn't answer to anyone. He is without competitor. He is without equal. He is above. He is over all. That's a big deal for us, too, because uh, we make other things to be gods in our lives very easily, don't we? In the beginning, God. There's one God. This is Moses recording these things, telling them to the Israelites as they're out in the wilderness. And he says they came out of Egypt with multiple gods, and and Moses is quick to remind them, no, you are a people of one God. The first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. goes straight back to that. Why shall they have no other gods before me? Because there is no other gods except for Yahweh, the one true God. And, And so when something competes for our attention, when something competes for our allegiance, when something competes or someone competes for our, our worship, what we give our most, what we give our best to, we come back to Genesis 1, we come back to the first commandment of the Ten Commandments and say, that's a trap. That's a lie. That's deceitfulness from the pit of hell. That's a trap. And we see that here in the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God Uh, Let's continue uh, through Genesis 1, uh, verses 3 and 4 and 5. And uh, essentially the rest of the first chapter is going to chronicle uh, the seven days of creation. uh, And and we're going to see a pattern. There's going to be some sort of declaration. Um, God is going to command something into being. We're going to see it realized in front of us. There's going to be some sort of comment of approval. Often the Lord says, this is good. There's going to be a comment from the narrator, uh, and then it's going to be assigned to a day. I'll I'll just read a couple verses. I want you to see this pattern. And God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. He names it. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. So then it's assigned to a day. So we kind of get this sequence, this chronological sequence uh, of creation. And uh, the pattern ultimately is God calls it into being. It shows up. And then God says, that's good. 
ultimately the pattern is this is by God for God. This is with God's power, with no help uh, beside him. Uh, This is his work. It is ultimately about him. Uh, Seven days of creation, and we work through days two, three, four, five, and six. In day two, we see the sky. In day three, we see the bodies of water, and we see land, and we see vegetation. In day four, you have the sun, and you have the stars, and you have the moon. In day five, it's everything that's in the water, right? All the fish that are in the Umqua right now, day five. Uh, And then day six is everything that lives on land. And of course, Adam, humanity, uh, mankind. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 said it's it's, creation is not just made by God. uh, It's made for him. Turn there if you have your your Bibles, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. I'll read it to you in just a minute. Because all things were created through him and for him. He didn't just do it all, but it's made for him. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says this. He is the image, talking about Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we don't worship creation. We worship the God of creation. He made it all. He did it all. Graffiti Days is is coming up. Uh, And so we're going to walk through the the downtown area. We're going to walk through the park and we're going to look at at what some incredible handiwork of people, of what people have done. And part of us will go, wow, that is a beautiful car. And then the person who did the work might be standing next to it. And we go, wow, what you have done is amazing, right? As we observe the beauty of the work, it leads us to recognize the masterful power, the masterful creative work of the one who built it. It says all things are created through him and all things are created for him. Church, this is permission to go out to one of the dozens of waterfalls in Douglas County. One website says there's 88 to go to one of those 88 waterfalls and to hike to that waterfall and just marvel at what you see. Not because it's just beautiful, but because it is extraordinarily beautiful and it points to someone who's even more beautiful. It points to a creator. As we observe the beauty of the created, it leads us to worship the beauty of the creator. Nehemiah 9, 6 says this, You are the Lord. You alone have made heaven. The heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. So it's not just created, not just for him, but he preserves all of it, holds it together. says, and you preserve all of them, and the host of of heaven worships you and the host of heaven worships you to observe creation is to observe in a small part the beauty and the power and the majesty of the creator nehemiah says and the host of heaven 
worships you. And so we, we start to move in the text a little bit from observing things about God in creation to starting to understand who we are in relation to him and what he asks of us. We see from Nehemiah 9, 6, the host of heaven worships you. The creation worships the creator. We're his by him, we'll see in a minute, made in his image, part of creation. So we're made for him. I mentioned a moment ago, we're quick to make other things idols, other things gods, right? Very easily work becomes a god in part because maybe we want uh, recognition that, that might come through achievement. Maybe we want... Uh, the reward for a good day's work by way of compensation and whatever that might do uh, for us or for our family or for someone uh, that we care about. Sometimes it's kids uh, becoming an idol and and we sort of orient our entire life uh, around them and their achievements or our achievements. Uh, it, It can be all sorts of things. And we understand from from here in Genesis that all of that is going to lead to emptiness all of that is, is going to feel at some point like, like a coping mechanism to reveal the emptiness that ultimately we as the creation were made for the creator, made to worship him. And it is what is so beautiful about this picture that's going to be unfolding in the book of Genesis of the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are with God in God's presence. The cover of your bulletin says, God with us that's what perfection looks like. That's what the ideal looks like, is God with us. It says, and the host of heaven worships you, Nehemiah 9, 6. We don't determine our purpose, we discover our purpose. We don't decide what life is about. We don't choose our path. We discover the path God has for us. We discover um, the purpose that God has for us. Let's follow along in chapter 1 verses 26 through 28, as we get a little bit of the record of the creation uh, of humanity and then move into chapter 2. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, work preceded the fall of man. In God's design, there was work. In God's design, there was work, and it was a good thing. It was an empowering thing. It was something as unto the Lord. It was him bestowing honor upon us. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. How do we understand ourselves and who God is in light of this passage? How do we understand who we are and what makes us special and what is our purpose and what gives us meaning? First, we are divine image bearers. We are divine image bearers. There's competing thoughts on what exactly that means. Some would say that that means we have a capacity to relate to God that is different than the rest of creation. Some would say that that means we have qualities of a slightly lesser 
to a slightly lesser degree uh, than God does, right? We have a capacity to do good things. He is supremely good. We have a capacity to grow in holiness. He is perfectly holy. Some would say that in some way we resemble him. So a lot of different thoughts on what that means. Uh, what makes sense to me is, is maybe uh, an Olympic athlete putting on the USA jersey and going and competing on behalf of our country. And, and that, that athlete represents our country. And in putting on that jersey, uh, that athlete takes on a more significant uh, responsibility uh, there, it's a special event, right? Every four years, it's the height in some sports of, of achievement or of accolade or of importance. Some of you recall a few years ago that some swimmers did some dumb things in another country and told a lie to cover up what they did. And when the story came out, it wasn't just embarrassing to them. When the world discovered that they were lying, right, it was an embarrassment to an entire country. Right? They, they, they were at that point image bearers of an entire country, and it was humiliating. So we don't have USA necessarily across our chests, but we all are image bearers. We all are divine image bearers. We all have a microphone. We all have a story to tell. We are all pointing either to ourselves or to our creator. There's nothing in between. We're pointing to ourselves or we're pointing to our creator. But we are divine image bearers and we find our purpose and our meaning in this honor that is bestowed upon us and then living out life accordingly as divine image bearers. It's really hard to do when we don't know in a personal and intimate way the one whose image we bear. So part of going through the Old Testament for 16 weeks is to discover maybe in a new and a fresh way, more in-depth getting a better snapshot of the one whose image we bear. Uh, not just that, but we get our sense of purpose and our sense of meaning from our origins, right? Where something comes from makes it potentially more valuable. If you were to walk into my office right now, you would see some really terrible art on the wall. It would be crayons and uh, colored pencils and maybe some markers. Some of the pictures you'd recognize, I think there's a Christmas tree, you could probably put that together from the green and the, and the little dot of yellow on top. Uh, some of the images, you wouldn't have the slightest clue what they are. But you know why they're up there. They're up there because my kids made them. And so the origin is really special to me, even if the art itself leaves a little bit to be desired. And so as we think about the Lord, we were made for him. We were made by him. He is our origin. We have value because he made us. We realize that value. We discover that value as we walk the path that he has given to us, as we worship, right? Sometimes we think worship, and it's only what happens up on stage, and you can't worship without an instrument. As we walk daily, a life declaring his praise, that's worship. As we walk daily, notice the things that are listed here uh, for Adam and Eve. Rule over and subdue creation. There's a ruling responsibility given to humanity. As we carry out that ruling responsibility, we declare his glory. 
Sometimes we think the work that we do Monday through Friday is secular and our time with the Lord, uh, maybe at church Sunday, that's sacred. And that's the best of the time and the rest of the week doesn't matter. It's just earning money or it's just paying rent. It's just putting food on the table. And so we understand from the text that there is no sacred secular divide. Part of the creation mandate to fulfill, to multiply, to rule over, to subdue is to work and to work well as unto the Lord as divine image bearers caring for what he created that is supposed to point us to him we can observe the waterfalls we can go to work wherever you work as unto the lord and fulfill our part of the creation mandate there is no sacred secular divide it's not just what happens here on sunday is the most sacred part of your week and and everything else it doesn't matter we operate out of that mindset sometimes and we've got to understand that this is part of god's call on our life to worship and it far exceeds it far extends beyond what happens here on sunday mornings genesis 9 6 records god interacting with noah after the flood, giving new rules and regulations. And God says this to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Why do we have value? We are made by him. We are made in the image of God. And we're not going to find qualifiers for who bears the image of God and and who doesn't. And so there's just this sobering thing that needs to happen where we understand that the unborn child bears the image of God, the newborn child bears the image of God, the young person bears the image of God, the young at heart bear the image of God. Uh, Regardless of your political persuasion, you bear the image of God, regardless of who disagrees with you and how strongly they disagree with you and what they say about you in their disagreement with you. They bear the image of God, regardless of your religious worldview, you bear the image of God. And so it needs to be unthinkable that God's people could not love who God loves and who he's created in his image image it should be unthinkable that we would denigrate others who god has created in his image let's pick it up in chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 a short couple verses but significant verse 16 through 18 and the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die we'll get into this more next week but wouldn't some of us confess that we think the ideal of life is no rules freedom is the absence of rules that a good friend will affirm us no matter what we do no matter how dumb it is uh, that the best thing that we can do to love people is to encourage them to be themselves and to go their own way regardless of the consequences i love that in the garden that there's already rules I think there's already some conditions there's already some expectations that god puts on his creation this idea of 
God with us. There must be a path. There must be a guide for how do we live this out, God with us. Because surely we must be capable of hitting the mark, and surely we must be capable of missing the mark. And so God has expectations for Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, don't touch, don't eat, don't look at, don't smell, don't pull the leaves down and rub them in your fingers. He says, don't eat of that tree or on that day you will surely die. Sometimes we think of God as some sort of a codependent person in a relationship and, and he just gushes over us uh, no matter what we do. And we can do whatever he wants and he says, good boy, good girl. Uh, there's expectations in any relationship. If you're in a marriage, there's expectations in that marriage. If, if you have a, a son or daughter, uh, there's expectations in that relationship, right? And, and when you... you fail with those expectations the relationship fractures and it breaks doesn't it you got to see that structure and order are not to be bucked and kicked against structure and order are part of god's design for the world and i think one of the things we'll see uh, these 16 weeks is that as we walk in the structure and within the order and the confines that he puts before us we become free to enjoy his good gifts Let's continue uh, verses 18, and then we'll jump to the last few verses of chapter 2, talking about man and woman. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. We could talk about that for a while, but we won't this morning. But I think maybe he was looking at some of those Facebook posts where you see the stupid things guys have done, the tall bridges that they jump off into very small bodies of water, stacking ladder upon ladder upon ladder upon ladder and standing on top of it to reach something that they should never uh, be reaching, all sorts of wonderful things when you have uh, extra time on your hands. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Isn't it interesting that God calls creation good and still says it could be better? God calls creation good and still says something's not right. I will make him a helper fit for him. Down to verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man... The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, a common uh, term that you'll you'll see throughout the Old Testament as an expression for equality in a family type setting, in a family relationship. He says, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, in this new relationship, in this covenantal aspect of marriage, a man leaves his father and his mother, or the woman leaves her father and mother, and they hold fast to each other. So they had priorities before, but what God has created is something new that has new priorities that trumps their previous priorities and previous responsibilities. It's not to belittle our responsibility to care for our parents. It's not doesn't belittle our responsibility to care for others, but it says, give yourselves to your marriage. This is a command of the Lord. And so to commit for anything less than forever is to commit to something less than, other than what 
is intended here. Uh, we see that in the very next verse. It says, and they will hold fast to his wife. There's a sense of permanence there. There's a priority there. There's purpose bestowed on that covenantal relationship. And they shall become one flesh. This is entirely something new where both lose some aspects of their identity to gain a greater, more complete picture of who God is. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. When I think naked and unashamed, I think of my five-year-old standing out on the back porch peeing off the back end. And I walk outside and I see him and he turns and he smiles. He doesn't stop or he doesn't cover up and run inside. He turns and he smiles. He is naked and he is unashamed. There are no expectations that he feels by anyone in that moment. There are no inhibitions whatsoever in that kid. And in that sense, there is this profound freedom. He doesn't feel less than. There's no part of his body that he feels less than or that he feels shame from. He is just uninhibited and free to be who God has made him to be without the sense or the shame that he ought to cover up. And isn't that a cool thing? That to a degree we can experience in marriage. And to know that we're moving towards that with the Father. We're moving towards that free and uninhibited. Free and without shame and guilt. Free and without expectation. Free without the constant sense that we're less than. That we don't measure up. It says they were naked and they were unashamed. You see, in, in, in marriage... Uh, We are a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. We're going to see that in the book of Ephesians. Jesus is described as the bridegroom and the church uh, as the bride. And there's instructions for both parts there, the church and Jesus and the husband and the wife. But the marriage relationship established by God, one man, one woman, is going to be a thing that the Lord will repeatedly come back to in Scripture to make a case to try to reveal to us His purposes and how He relates to us, His bride. Uh, Let's wrap up with Revelation uh, 21. John is, is recording here what he sees in the new heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. And I just want, I want, want us to have this sense that from beginning to end, this is God's work. It's all about him. It's his power that brings it about. He doesn't need our help. This theme of God with us, this is not my theme, it's the theme of Scripture, of God pursuing humanity. Right? God addressing the mess that we make with what he's given to us. His patient pursuit, his forgiving pursuit to get back to the garden, naked and unashamed. Here's what John sees at the end. If you're a follower of Christ, this is where John sees you at the end. This is your certain and secure eternal future. 
He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Doesn't need our help for this part either. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that sound like the garden? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And behold, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water life without payment. I am the beginning and the end. It is done. Talk about the timelessness of God at the beginning, at creation, that he precedes creation, that he is without cause, that he always has been and always will be. He is just as present in our past as he is in our future. He's there, sees it right in front of him, and he declares, he says, it is done. Words you're more familiar with, it is finished. This is the future. This is the certainty of our hope. This is what we have to look forward to. I don't know the wounds that you bring in this morning, uh, but I believe with all my heart that all of us need to hear from the Lord that he is sovereign in his supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing rule over our life. That his plan is good. That he declared each day of creation good and he is actively working in our lives to bring about that good work we said that he is timeless we are bound by time and so we look around and we don't see good we look around and we see slow he is not bound by time we are bound by time revelation 21 says i'm the beginning and the end it is done write this down Wherever you're at this morning, whatever you're holding on to, whatever seems unfinished of the Lord, whatever flat out doesn't seem good, John says, write this down. It is done. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. And as they do, we're going to also have a prayer team on both sides. And uh, I just have a sense this morning that there are a whole bunch of us uh, that are not living in the peace and the joy and the security and the confidence that we get from Genesis 1 and from Revelation 21, that it is done, write this down. And if that's you this morning, I I just invite you to take advantage of prayer team up here who just want to uh, take the burdens that you carry uh, and lift them up to the Lord with you. Uh, Join me in prayer, would you? Lord, we, we bring 
all of life before you, and we confess that we daily doubt and deny your power because we seize control of the reins, we seize control of the steering wheel, we think that we can drive better than you can, we think that we know how to get where we're going, and that we even know where we're going when we don't, and so help us to take our hands off the wheel as we submit to your power, as we take ownership of the fact that we are divine image bearers, and our value, Lord, is derived from the one whose image we bear. Lord, as Nehemiah 9 says, may the host of heaven, Lord, may we as the creation, may we worship you, may we worship our creator. Lord, we would even ask your spirit this week to bring to light ways in which Lord, we are living for our own purposes. We are denying your power and trying to live within our own means. Lord, draw us to yourself that we might see the beauty around us and be reminded of the beauty of our creator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.